Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. It is so good to see you this morning. Glad you are here today. Listen, today is an exciting today because today is Baptism Sunday at Discover Church. We're excited about that, an opportunity for people to go public with their faith. And uh, man, just excited to baptize some people. As we talk about that, I want to remind you, for those that were here uh, with us in the spring and for those that are new, I want to catch you up. In the spring of this year, we rolled out a two-year vision initiative that we called Never Settle. And the whole idea is over the next two years, God has impressed it upon our hearts to do everything that we can to help 250 people take a new next step in their relationship with Jesus. And so what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, we, we just kind of broke it down at, with the mission of our church. The mission of our church is to help people discover life in Christ. So when someone gets baptized and they're publicly saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, man, we would consider that a, an answered prayer that we've been praying for, uh, that, 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 that's one of the 250 people we're praying for. When somebody takes a step to discover belonging community, what does that mean? Well, it means when they finish the session of small groups for the first time, man, we're going to consider that an answer to prayer because, because you have taken a step to connect into biblical community, um, either, either with us for the first time or in biblical community ever for the first time, and we consider that an answer to prayer. When someone takes a step to discover purpose, what does that mean? It means that they finished our Next Steps course. Our Next Steps course is designed to help people learn why they're here. We like to say it this way, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. And our Next Steps course is designed to help people answer that question. So when someone completes that, man, we consider that an answer to prayer. And then lastly, the, the fourth part of our mission as a church is for people to make a difference. And what does that look like? How do we measure that? Well, when someone jumps into and settles into a dream team, which is our Sunday morning volunteer teams, for the first time, man, we consider that an answer to prayer. Each one of those steps are the part of the journey that God wants every single person to go on. And we like to say it this way, that, that your journey with God is our mission as a church. And so we just want to celebrate that. So today, what's going to happen is, is we're not only going to baptize some people, but you've probably also noticed kind of a never settle banner, a never settle wall. And on that are 250 silhouettes. And what we're praying for is at the end of this, uh, at the end of two years, that every single one of those silhouettes would have a name on it. And we would be able to see that that name has a story that matters to God, it matters to us, and so we chose to never settle until that name took that step in their journey with God. And so that's why that banner's out there, and by, by God's grace, we're going to see 250 people take new next steps in Christ, and so that's what we're going to be doing today, and I'm excited about it, I'm excited to celebrate it with you. Before we jump into the message today, um, I, I feel it would be uh, necessary um, to take a minute and talk about current events. And uh, uh, by now, unless you have just been completely living under a rock, I mean, I was in Wyoming for the last week without cell phone and Wi-Fi, and I heard the news. So unless you are just really living under a rock, perhaps you're unaware about the decision the Supreme Court made to overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, I want to talk about this for a couple minutes because this, is, um, this has become a super divisive subject, not only in the country, but even in the church. And I want to, I want to share four quick thoughts with you, and then, then we're going to move on. I preached a message on this subject matter um, several years ago called Unspoken. Um, I don't know uh, if it's available on podcast, but we'll make it available on podcast, and the tech team responsible for that would have liked for me to told them that before I said it just now. So I'm sorry. I just thought of that. Um, thank you to whoever's responsible for that. Um, and uh, here's the deal. I, I want to make something really, really clear. Abortion is not and never has been a political issue. It is a gospel issue. It's a biblical issue that people have capitalized on in order to score political points. Because it's a gospel and biblical issue, it is an issue that the people of faith, the people of Jesus's body should care about. Hear me clearly. Any person or any church that advocates only one side of the story is not advocating for a gospel position. They're advocating for a, for a political position. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that Number one, I think it is right and appropriate that God's people would celebrate the opportunity for unborn children to be able to have life. 
I think we need to celebrate that. I think it's important that we celebrate, celebrate that. Since Roe versus Wade became uh, 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 written by the Supreme Court, it's estimated that 70 million babies have been aborted. God is unflinchingly clear that he created life and he created it in the womb of the mother. Scripture says that God knit us together when we were in our mother's womb. We need to celebrate and it is appropriate to celebrate the fact that one of top two, maybe top three of the biggest stains on our nation has been reversed and that we are, that, that unborn children now have um, better opportunity, although I understand it's going back to the states and the states are going to figure it out, that, that it's no longer a federal permission for babies to be aborted. That's one side of the issue. Here's the other side of the issue. It is necessary that we show compassion and empathy for the people who are angry, for the people who disagree, for the people who are frustrated, and for the people who are scared. Why? Because every single one of those 70 million babies that have been aborted was carried by a woman who, in, in my experience, I've yet to talk to a woman or a man who has gone through the process of abortion, through the decision-making process of abortion that has said, I'm so excited and thankful about my, the decision that I made. The events that led to that were awesome and great, and I'm so glad I could be there. You see, the reality of it is, is every single one of those 70 million babies was carried by a woman who was in all probability there, not because she wanted to be. It is necessary that we, as people of faith, listen with compassion and with empathy because there are people who are legitimately concerned and legitimately afraid, and their concerns and their fears are valid. Here's my third point, and then I'll be done. We, as the people of Jesus, must go into action. This is personal for me because my mom was a young teenager when she got pregnant with me. She had family members who advised her to get an abortion. And I am eternally grateful that I had a father who advocated and wanted me to be born. I'm thankful that I had a mother who, despite the hardship she knew she was facing, chose to give me an opportunity to live. And I'm thankful that they had what so many people in this situation do not have, which was a strong support system and support network. And I believe that we, as the people of God, we should celebrate, but we need to go into action. We need to show young mothers and young fathers that, that, that you're not going to be shrouded in shame if you walk into this place and you are facing an unplanned pregnancy, that this is not going to be a church where we're going to point fingers of shame. Instead, we're going to throw a baby shower and let you know we love you, we care about you. God not only cares about the child you're carrying, he cares about you. I've already heard from some people in our church that are looking for ways to try to organize some people in our church to serve um, families who are uh, fostering or adopting. We have families in our church that are currently fostering and adopting. Can I tell you, if God has put that on your heart, lean into that, say yes to that, and allow us as a church family to celebrate with you and to walk with you in that journey. I'm so thankful that from almost the beginning of our church, we have not only been about um, praying and hoping that abortion would no longer become federally legalized, but we have been praying and advocating almost from day one with our partner Resource Health right here in the Kansas City Metro to advocate, to resource, to support and care for these young women and these young men who are facing this unplanned pregnancy. See, it's not okay to just say we want babies to be born and then to act like the mother or the father doesn't matter. We have to say both. It's not either or. And so it's my hope that we as a church could leave and that we could, we could yes, celebrate, but we must also show compassion and empathy and we must be willing, if we care about it enough to say something about it on social media, then you better back it up with your actions. 
God, forgive us if we care enough to tell people how wrong they are on social media, but we sit on our butts and we do nothing to help the situation. Let's celebrate, let's show compassion, and let's be active. Lord, I come to you today and I thank you so much that you care about us. I thank you that you care about the unborn. I thank you that you care about the mothers that are carrying them. I thank you that you care about the fathers who fathered them. I thank you that you care about the situation, the circumstance they may be in, regardless of how obscure or bleak or hopeless it may be. God, we just sang about how you are a way maker. And the way that you so often make a way is when the people of God respond in obedience to God to go love the lost and the least and the left behind. God, I pray that we would be a people and that this would be a church that would not just be about words, but that we would be about actions. And God, I pray that you would help us. And I pray that you would help your children across the nation to care not about saying that we won and you lost, but that we would be broken, that we would be grieved to care for the people who are facing a decision that they likely never planned for. And that we would not be obsessed with why they made the decision or the thing that happened to them to get here and we would see them as somebody that you loved, you created, you sent Jesus to die for. Jesus went back up into heaven and left us here to go show them his love. And so God, we celebrate. Help us to have compassion and empathy. And help us to be about action. And all God's people said, amen. I want to jump into our message series today um, called By Faith. And, and as God would have it, there's a correlation um, to what we're talking about today to the subject matter that I just, we just finished talking about. And what we've been doing this summer is we've been going through the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and we've been learning about these people that, that the scripture calls heroes of the faith. And we've been using that as a springboard to go back into the Old Testament and to learn about them. And we're gonna continue to do that today. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but we live in a, in a pretty politically correct world. We live in a pretty politically correct environment. And because of that, there are always forces at work trying to convince people of faith that there is a division between the sacred and the secular, that, that there is a time and place for you to enjoy your sacred encounters with your God, and there is a time and place for you to go out into the world, and when you go out into the world, you're to leave your faith in your house, you're to leave your faith at the church, you're to leave your faith at the door. But I want to help us see today that as followers of Jesus, we are not allowed to do this. There are not, there's not a way that, that we can live with this secular sacred divide. The reason for that is because we don't live by a religion. We don't follow just a, a, a mindset or an idea that's defined by a set of guidelines as defined by a book. That's not what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is defined and categorized by a relationship with the one true living God. And there is no part of our life that God doesn't want to have access to. The Christian, to tell a Christian that there are certain environments that you can practice your faith and other environments that you can't practice your faith is like trying to tell a human to live their entire existence underwater without the support of additional oxygen. It's not possible. Because as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that our faith, your faith in Jesus impacts and influences every aspect of our life. There is no part of your life that God does not want to have influence in. There's no part of your life that God doesn't want to have access to. So today, as we dive into the next hero in the story, we're going to learn how God wants us to, God's going to provide an example for us to live by faith in a new expression. By a quick reminder, here's what we've learned so far in the series. What is faith? Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, then you should, you should probably know this by now. But we define faith as this, that faith is believing something is so when it isn't so because God said it so. All right, now come on, look to your neighbor, all right, because it's just fun, right? It's like you didn't know you can rap in church, all right? All right, so look at your neighbor. God said something is so when it isn't so because God said it so. Some of you refused because I made a rap reference. 
My father-in-law affectionately refers to all rap as C-rap. And he's not talking about Christian rap. He just literally is spelling crap. Yeah. There's two types of people in every crowd. The people who get it and the people who need help. Here's what we've learned uh, from two people. From Abel, we learned how to worship by faith. From Enoch, last week, we learned how to walk by faith. And today, we're gonna study one of the most famous people in all of scripture named Noah. And through the life of Noah, we're gonna learn how to work by faith. We're gonna pick this up in Hebrews chapter 11, and it says this. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to the faith. So right here in Hebrews eleven seven, it tells us that Noah did three things by faith. He built an ark, he rebuked people, and he became an heir of righteousness. What does this mean and what does it look like? Well, let's start, and let's start with the first two. He built an ark and he rebuked the world. It said that he was divinely warned warned of things not yet seen. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to the story in Genesis and let's see how this story unfolds. Genesis chapter six, verse five says this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You know, it's, it says that, that the wickedness of man in the time of Noah was so great. Notice what it says. It says that every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually. Truthfully, it's hard for us to understand this type of depravity. It's hard for us to understand this type of evil and wickedness. We see things that happen in the world and we can acknowledge certain things as, man, that's evil, that's wicked. And, and a lot of people who grew up in church will often say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Or if you didn't grow up in church um, or if you grew up in the South like I did, you just say it a little bit, a little bit less spiritually and saying the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. All right? It's the same thing, just one sounds a little bit better. But here's the deal. It's, it's hard for us to fully imagine what this is. If you've ever uh, watched uh, any, if you're familiar at all with the Batman comics, right? Right, Batman is, is, is the Cape Crusader. A lot of people say he's not really a superhero. He's just a rich dude with a lot of toys. I'll let you decide which side of that argument you're on. All right, but what's the deal? He, he's in Gotham and he, he's, he's trying to, to, to protect Gotham from all the bad people that have come from the Arkham, right? Here's the deal. To, to try to contextualize this with what it would have been like in Genesis 6 in the days of Noah, it, it would have been like all of Gotham was only full of Joker-like villain characters. There were no good people. There were no, there, there were no innocent people. It was always evil, continually wicked all the time. And so God looked down and was sorry. And it says that he was sorry that he made, man, this is a remarkable confession by God. He was sorry that he made man. Now, now we, in order for us to really understand the significance of this, we've got to go back and remember how God made man. God made man in his image. He made humanity as the crowning jewel of all of his creation. And then after he made man, he said, man, it's not good that you're alone. Homeboy, you need some help. And all the men in the room said, Amen. I'm gonna tell you right now, some of y'all fellows are gonna pay for missing your spot right there. Somebody gonna be sleeping on the couch tonight. You can text me and I will pray for you. And then I will say, it's your own dang fault. So God creates man and then he creates a woman and he, he allows them to be compatible, to be companions with one another. And then God, God created, he placed them in this perfect, beautiful paradise. And God came and he walked with them and he talked with them. He was in fellowship and relationship with them and they were able to ask questions and, and have dialogue. But then sin came along. And when sin came along, God did not condemn them. God, God said that there's gonna be some consequences because of what you did, but God immediately went to work. He provided a covering and a sacrifice for their sins. And then out of his overwhelming love and desire to have a relationship with humanity, God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and he put angels at the gate to prevent them from coming back in. That sounds mean, that sounds angry, that sounds vengeful. Why would God do that? Because not only did Adam and Eve 
Eve know that there was one tree in the midst of the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God had told them there's another tree, the tree of everlasting life. And what God knew is that if they ate of the tree of everlasting life before they were redeemed, before what they did was paid for, then they would be forever locked into separation apart from God. And so God, out of his love and out of his desire to have a relationship with humanity again, he put a plan in motion to bring Jesus to die for the sins of humanity so that by faith in Christ, you no longer have to be an alien and separated from God, an enemy of God, but you can have a loving, close, personal, intimate relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creation of the cosmos. And and he wants to have that kind of relationship with every single person that he has ever created and knit together when they were still in their mother's womb. And so for God to say, I am grieved, I am sorry that I made man, it is an indicator of how far humanity has fallen apart from him. Now we get to Hebrews. Remember it said that Noah was divinely warned. So, so, so far we've read the condition and now we're gonna see how he was divinely warned, verse six. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. God now gives Noah his warning. Noah, this is what's gonna happen. From here, God sees fit to have a short little parenthesis to include Noah into the story, into the narrative of what's going on. And this is what scripture says of Noah, verse eight. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? The next verse tells us, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, means that he lived rightly. He was perfect in his generations. Doesn't mean that he was sinless, but in comparison to all the people that he lived with, he lived more perfectly and more in a perfect relationship with God than anybody else. And then it said, Noah walked with God. If you were here last week, we spent the entire week talking about how Enoch walked with God. And that's what Noah did. Then God gives Noah, some instruction, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover inside and outside with pitch. And then God goes on to provide detailed instructions to build this massive wooden cruise ship that's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. This isn't a John boat. This is a massive, massive structure. And then in verse 17, God tells Noah exactly what he's gonna do. He says, and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all the flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. What does Noah do? Noah gets to work. He starts building the ark. Now scripture doesn't tell us exactly how long it took, but we can surmise if you've ever built anything ever, with a power tool, imagine doing it with a non-power tool. Imagine doing it with an elbow grease tool. And then you can begin to imagine how long it would have taken to build a wooden cruise ship. It would have taken years and all probability would have taken decades for Noah to build the ark. And as he builds it, we learn, we learn that by faith he built an ark, by faith he rebuked and prophesied and condemned the world. What does that look like? It means that at some point through the process, I mean, if you start seeing somebody do something in their backyard that starts infringing upon your territory and it looks ridiculous and stupid, you're not gonna stand there and go, that looks great. You go, man. You are a genius. You might say that, but then you go inside and tell your spouse, what is that idiot doing? Have you seen what they're doing in their backyard? I know you would do that because I have done that as I've seen what my neighbors do in their backyard. Hopefully I'm not the only one. If I am, Lord help me. So these people inevitably would have come up, they would have been making fun of Noah. They would have been making fun of Noah's God. Remember that the thought, every thought and every intent of the heart of every person on the planet at that time was only evil continually. So you better believe that they were not only making fun of Noah and and condemning and chastising Noah, they would have been making fun of his God. Second Peter gives us a little insight here. It says that Noah was one of eight people, a preacher of 
righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. What does that mean? It means that while he was building the ark, he was preaching about the righteousness of God. What does that mean? He was saying, listen, God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. We are not. God's not happy with what's going on. We need to repent and come back to God because if you don't, God's going God's to do some business here. He's going to wipe some things out. So by faith, Noah not only built the ark, but by faith, he condemned the world through preaching of righteousness. Later, we learn in Genesis chapter 7 exactly what happened, and God did exactly what he promised. It does indeed rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and it says this in Genesis 7, and on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. I want you to catch this, because what this means is, is it didn't just rain like cats and dogs. Like, if you've seen Forrest Gump, and he talks about the rain, there was rain, that was coming from above and there was sideways rain and there was even rain coming from the bottom, right? Like, like this is a all-encompassing water situation. God has opened the floodgates of heaven and it is raining on the earth. But not only that, the water tables under the earth are being busted up. Now, some of y'all are city folk and y'all don't know this. I grew up in the country. I grew up on well water. Somebody goes, well, that sounds bad. What is well water? It means that we somebody put a house somewhere and then they drilled down into the ground until they found some water and they put a filter down there and then we attached it to some other fancy stuff I don't understand and voila, you flip the tap and there's water. So what's happening here is that the water tables underneath the surface of the earth burst out of the surface of the earth. Water is coming from above and from below and for 40 days and 40 nights, it is a relentless torrent of a rainstorm. Noah and his family, they get in the boat, they get all the animals as God described them, and they spend an entire year on the ark, and you thought your family vacation was rough. And so they're eventually instructed to leave the ark, walk on a dry ground, and start anew as the new first family. Now, a couple of observations. After reading this story and learning about God righteously judging the earth, I am often confused as to why businesses market this story as cutesy things for kids. I have been, nobody in this church, but I have been in people's homes, they were expecting their first baby and they thought it'd be great to decorate with Noah's Ark wallpaper. And I've been confused by that, like what kind of message does that send? Good morning, sweet pea. It's so good to see you. Do you see your beautiful decorations? That's Noah's Ark. It's just a reminder you better stay on the straight and narrow because if you don't, God's going to bring the wrath of God on you. Odd strategy. Maybe it's genius. I don't know. It's a little odd. I mean, I love the good parts of the story. I mean, the story is about God's wrath on sin, but it's also about God's grace and justice on people who follow him. So I'm in on the good parts of that story. Here's the second observation. I realize, particularly in light of how I started our time together today, that some might see this story as a confusing story. I mean, isn't God supposed to be loving? Isn't God supposed to be gracious? Yes, he is. God is also just and righteous. You cannot separate God from being loving and you cannot separate God from being just. They're inseparable character qualities of the nature of our God. As I was studying this, I came across a quote by a, 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 an old famous preacher um, and theologian by the name of C.H. Spurgeon and he said this, he who does not believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the atoning blood of Jesus. In other words, if we don't understand that sin is against God and God will eventually judge it, then we'll never understand why we need a relationship with Jesus. Again, we can't pick and choose what part of the nature and character of God that we want because it's all inseparable to his nature. The story of Genesis 6, the story of the flood and the ark is a story of God's wrath against evil and wickedness. And oh, by the way, we all appreciate justice against evil and wickedness. We just don't like it 
when we're the ones who do evil, wicked things and we get the justice on us. Let me give an example. If you live in a neighborhood and some idiot is driving through your neighborhood, down your street where your kids play, driving 70 miles an hour, you want justice against that person to protect your children. But when you are on a 16-hour road trip to Florida and you set the cruise control at 15 over, you are ticked when you get pulled over. Now, some of y'all are some holy, righteous people that said the speed limit is 70. I set my cruise control at 69. I don't understand you. I don't, I don't, I will freely admit I ride the gray line of grace when it comes to a road trip. (laughs) And if I can get some idiot who's willing to drive faster than me, I may or may not agree with them. And my spirit bears witness with their spirit and go, you're going to be the one getting a ticket, not me. (laughs) But my GPS says I'm going to get there at this time. And there's something inside of me that says I have to beat it. Our wives are praying for us right now. I didn't hear many women saying amen in that situation. So God tells Noah to do something. And you know what's interesting to me? Noah had nearly an unlimited number of excuses to not have faith in the moment. Why don't you think about this? Noah had never seen rain before. Scripture tells us that up to this point, the entire globe was covered with a dew. It didn't rain, it was just dewy. Not only had Noah never seen rain before, he never even heard of the concept of a flood. It's like, it's like explaining something to you that you've never heard of, understood, or can fathom or, or conceptualize, and then going, okay, yeah, I'll go do that. Mm-hmm. Think about this. Noah was familiar with a boat, but he wasn't familiar with a cruise ship, much less how to build one. Noah, when this happened, Noah lived in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And according to Google Earth, it's about 350 miles to the closest significant body of water. It would be like God telling you there's gonna be a flood and you're like, well, I'm 350 miles from the Lake of the Ozarks. It ain't gonna reach here. Or how about this? When God told Noah to do this, Noah didn't have any help. His sons weren't born yet. It was just him. And at some point he started having kids and faced the decision that every dad has to face. I can either do it myself and get it done faster or I can lose my salvation by having my kids help. No, son, that's not a hammer. That's a, that's a tape measure. Yet despite all of these excuses, Noah chose faith. So let me ask you this question. What's the last thing God told you to do? Have you done it? You see, what happens is, is God will speak to us and he will lead us and he will guide us. He tells us that his Holy Spirit dwells within us and he's constantly leading, constantly guiding, constantly correcting, constantly directing because he made a promise, I will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. And so when God sometimes tells us to do things, sometimes we come up with a whole bunch of logical reasons about why we can't do that. God, I never even heard of rain. A flood, what that is. You want me to build a cruise ship? Got it. Question number one, what is a cruise ship? You see, we develop these, these reasons why we can't do what God has led us to do or asked us to do. And can I also just say this? Like sometimes we get into places in our faith and our walk with God and we feel like God is distant. Can I tell you the reasons in all probability why God feels distant? Because God came into your life here and said, I wanna lead you this way. And you said, I'm good, I'm going this way. And you get here and you go, God, where are you? And God says, I'm still over here when I was leading you to go do this and you said no. Let 
makes me ask the question, what is the greatest step of faith we can take? Think about Noah. What was the greatest step of faith that Noah took, right? By faith, he did all this stuff. Noah, what was the greatest, most significant, most important step of faith that you took? Was it when he got in the boat? Was it when he ushered the animals into the boat? Was it when he built the boat? And I don't think that, I don't think any of those are the answer. Can I tell you what I believe was the greatest step of faith that Noah took? when he picked up the ax. Because when he picked up the ax, he had purpose in his heart, I'm gonna do what God told me to do. And he swung it and he chopped down the first tree. Can I tell you something? That your first step of faith is the most important step of faith. You just gotta get started. It doesn't mean that everything's gonna be easy after that, but it does mean that now the snowball is rolling. I have gotten over the hump. I'm moving now, and now God can begin to move in me and through me and around me because I have taken the first step of faith towards him. So he built an ark by faith. He condemned the world by faith by being a preacher of righteousness. And then lastly, Hebrews 11 said he became an heir of righteousness. Now, I gotta be honest, I almost, I almost didn't include this in the message, especially I wasn't planning any of the front end of this stuff, but I just felt like I, I can't cut this part of the message out because this may be the most significant part of the message for somebody here today. It's easy for us to read Hebrews eleven seven and the things that Noah did by faith and, and, and just kind of skip over that he became an heir of righteousness. Well, of course he did. He's a hero of the faith. But you know what's so amazing about Noah? Noah wasn't always a goody two-shoes. Yes, God said that he was just and that he lived righteously and that he walked with God. But that's not the whole story of Noah. Noah actually had one of the most remarkably embarrassing moments recorded in all of scripture. They get out of the ark. Noah plants a vineyard. Noah makes grapes, he turns the grapes into wine, and Noah gets plastered drunk. And in Genesis chapter nine, we find out what happens after he gets drunk. Verse 22, it says, and Ham, this is one of Noah's three sons, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father, gross, and told his two brothers outside, more gross. But Shem and Japheth, the other two sons of Noah, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went in backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. Immediately after this, it says Noah wakes up, he finds out what happened and he pronounces a curse on his son, Ham. What on earth is going on here? What does it mean that Ham saw the nakedness of his father? Well, let me give you a little pro tip when you're studying the Bible. Sometimes you're gonna come across things in the Bible that don't make sense. And you're gonna want to go look and well, what do people say about this? Can I just tell you one of the best ways to help you understand what the Bible says is to compare scripture with scripture. Because there's a lot of times where God says something that is unclear in one place, but if you will connect the dots to another place where he talks about it, he oftentimes brings more clarity in a different part of the story. And that's exactly what happens here. There's a couple places where the phrase, the nakedness of his father is used, but I wanna take you to Leviticus chapter 18, verse seven, and it says this, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. This in Leviticus 18 is written in a context talking about sexual immorality. And what we learn here when we connect all the dots together, what Ham did is he walked into Noah's tent. He knew that Noah was drunk. He saw his mom and decided to have his way with his mother. I'm from Arkansas and even that's weird to me. Now I can say that you can't. Noah had become so inebriated that he was unable to protect his wife from his own son. 
This is embarrassing and awful on multiple fronts. Number one, because you were drunk, bro. Somebody came in and violated your wife. And number two, you've done such a stellar job as a dad. Like, I don't know what you did wrong, but, but, but now you carry this shame that your son did that to your wife. Suffice it to say that Noah would not have included this on his highlight reel. But it's important that we understand that God intentionally includes it in the narrative of Noah's story. So that when we get to Hebrews eleven seven, we can see, yeah, Noah built the ark by faith. Awesome, get that. Noah condemned the world being a preacher of righteousness. How did he do that? By faith. Noah also became an heir of righteousness by faith. How is it possible that God could, can call Noah righteous when he allowed this to happen? I know this is a bit odd, but I don't want you to lose why, sight of why this is important. God can still call Noah an heir of righteousness because God is trying to help us understand through the life of Noah that the power of God's grace is greater than the power of our past, of our sin, of our shame, and our mistakes. Let me put it to you in a different way that might be a little bit more contextually relevant. God doesn't cancel sinners who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You see, the moment you exercise faith in Christ for salvation, the cross has had the final word. The cross is the final display where Jesus took upon him all of the wrath of God upon all of the sin and all of the evil and all of the wickedness so that by faith in the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus and the power of the resurrection of him from the grave, we can now associate and attribute the righteousness of God on Christ's behalf on our lives despite what our past may be filled with. And you and I, by faith, regardless of our past, regardless of the guilt and the shame and the mistakes, if we, by faith, will trust in Christ, then we all can become heirs of righteousness. And when you, by faith, become an heir of righteousness, what you begin to realize is, is that no longer do your past and your mistakes and your guilt and your shame and your burdens, it's still a part of your story. You don't forget it because it demonstrates just how good God is, that when I was still a sinner, Christ died. But what it does mean is that those things now are no longer the headline over your life. The cross is the headline over your life. Grace doesn't give you permission to keep on sinning, but what it does do is give you perspective to see how your life and your position as it relates to God has radically changed, not because of who you are or what you did, but because of who Christ is, what he did, and because you chose to place your faith in him. No, what was your secret, bro? How did you bridge the sacred and the secular when everybody was making fun of you for bringing your faith into your your everyday life, into your work life, and everybody was ridiculing you and making fun of you and cursing your God? No, what was your secret, man? How was it that you were able to do the impossible by building an ark? How was it that you were able to have courage to rebuke sin while pursuing God? How was it that you, Noah, after knowing the rest of your story, the stuff that was in your journal and tucked away under your bed that nobody knew about, but now I know about it, how was it possible that you became an heir of righteousness? The answer is, is that Noah chose to work in every area of his life by faith. What? Well, that's not very helpful. What does that mean? What does it look like? How do I make this practical? I'll tell you how you make it practical. The secret to living a life that would be pleasing to God as Noah's life was pleasing to God despite some of his mistakes is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, and it says this. After God gave all the instructions and said, I'm gonna condemn the world and I'm gonna gonna clean it out and I'm gonna give you this impossible thing to do, Verse 22 says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. And so he did. What's the key? What's the secret? Obedience is the secret to a life 
of faith. Can I tell you, it's inevitable that in your journey of faith, you will experience what no experience where God's gonna lead you to do something that's gonna feel ridiculous. That God's gonna direct you or command you to do something that seems impossible. That God's gonna, through his word or through the spirit, through prayer, God's gonna tell you to do something that, that, that goes against your gut. It's inevitable in your journey of faith that God is gonna lead you to merge the secular and the sacred of your life and to realize that there was never really any division that existed there. Despite how awkward it might make you feel to bring your sacred life into your secular world, despite how much people in politics, people in power try to tell you that there's a division between church and state and, and, and that's good for you, but, but, but keep your faith at the door. It's not possible as a follower of Jesus to allow there to be a bridge between the secular and the sacred because Jesus is Lord over all of it. Jesus sees your joys and your hardships in your secular life. Jesus sees the burdens and the confusions and the frustrations in your secular life. Jesus sees the difficult moments that you're facing in your secular life. And what Jesus is saying is, is I don't, I don't just want to have a relationship with you when you're sitting in church on a Sunday or when you're in a small group or when you're driving in your car and you're having worship time. No, no, no. I want you to know that I am with you every step of the way. There is no room you will walk into that my presence is not with you. There is no conversation that will begin that I will not guide you. There is no, no difficulty and no hardship and no decision that you will ever have to make where I'm not going to be right there with you. Because there is no division in God's eyes from the secular and the sacred. There's gonna be times where God's gonna lead you to attempt impossible things for his glory. And I don't know what those things are going to be. It's in those moments that obedience becomes key. The attempt to try to close the loop from where we started. There's going to be times where God is going to make it clear that your thoughts and your opinions your perspective about things, about people, about policies. There's gonna be times, and it's happened in my life several times, where God is gonna make it clear that you have drifted apart from me and you're now developing thought processes and worldviews and perspectives that are apart from me. And in your journey with God, if at some point your worldview isn't challenged, then I would argue that you're not walking with God because God doesn't exist to make us feel happy about everything that's happening and to agree with us. When those situations in your ha happen in your life, you're gonna be tempted with all sorts of logical reasons why you should ignore it, why it doesn't make sense. I wasn't raised to think that way. I wasn't raised to believe this way. I see this and it breaks my heart and it causes me to think this way or that way about what's going on. God, I don't know that I can align with you. And when those things happen, when the, when the, 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 the logical reasons begin to come up in your life, you will be tempted to ignore the leadership of the spirit of God in your life to shape you and mold you and conform you to be more like him and with all my heart let me beg you to reconsider ignoring the voice of God in your life let me beg you to reconsider before you go on social media before you engage in a conversation before you you get all hot and bothered by something to first ask the question God is my anger is my brokenness is my sadness is my conviction is my opinion am I firmly rooted in the word of God in the character of God in the nature of God before I open my mouth or turn on my phone to say what I feel like I need to say The life of faith is one that doesn't always make sense, but it will always be guided by the Spirit of God. 
And when you do obey, then you'll begin to realize an incredible purpose for your life. I don't know what that purpose is. For Noah, it was to build a ridiculously sized boat that he had never seen before, to prepare for something he had never heard of before. In order to experience a grace from God he'd never experienced before. When I think about this and how it connects to us, I think about a verse in Philippians chapter two that I think God would use to describe Noah. And it's a verse that God would desire to use to describe you and me when it says that you may become blameless and harmless. Can I just tell you, church, one of the things that breaks my heart is we see something that happens in the culture and society and it agrees with us and we go, man, I'm blameless, yes. But in our joy, we become harmful to other people. God's desire for us is that we would be blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I love how another translation says it, among whom you shine like stars in the universe. I spent the last week in Wyoming with some other pastors completely disconnected. I didn't have cell phone or Wi-Fi. It freaked me out a little bit, but I was out in the middle of literally nowhere. And I saw the beautiful contrast of the lights of the stars against the blackness of the sky. Church, this is who God has called us to be. And can I just offer you this, that, that you don't shine as lights when the government agrees with your perspective. You and I shine as lights when you love God and you love people as God directed. So let me close. What do we do in response to this message? Go and do the last thing that God told you to do. And as you walk by faith, you worship by faith and you work by faith. May the love of Jesus shine through you, not just to the people that you like and agree with you, but shine more brightly through you to the people that you may not necessarily like, that may not necessarily agree with you because God told you to love them. And if you're here today and you've never experienced the transformational power of the love of God in your life, I could think of no better day than today for you to receive that and experience God change your life. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.